This is the month that we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Why? Not why December. That's not really important. But why do we celebrate his birth? Why was Jesus born? To answer our question, I want to take a look at this passage that Evan read for us out of Hebrews chapter 2. It gives us some profound reasons Christmas is so important for us to celebrate. On the very first Christmas Eve, probably not December 24th, earth was oblivious to what was happening, but heaven wasn't. The myriad of holy angels were waiting in anticipation, waiting to break forth in praise and and worship and adoration to the birth of this Christ child, of the newborn child. A child that meant that God had sent forth his salvation. And on that first Christmas Eve, there was a farewell going on in heaven. The son said goodbye to his father. Did you know that the conversation that the son had with his father, at least in part, is recorded for us in Hebrews chapter 10. Jesus speaking to the father, and this is what he said that first Christmas Eve. The writer of Hebrews starts out by saying, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, and this is what Jesus said to the father, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. In other words, God, God uh, was not satisfied with just the animal sacrifices, the blood sacrifices. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He said, Father, I realize that you haven't been satisfied with all those, the blood of all those animals over the centuries, of hundreds and thousands of lambs that were, that were sacrificed, that you prepared a body for me, that I might go into that world and be the final and ultimate sacrifice. And I will do it willingly because I want to do your will. And so Jesus, on that first Christmas Eve, said goodbye to his father and began, began a journey that would end 33 years later, on the cross. And then through a resurrection, he would be glorified and exalted once more and restored back into heaven in the glory that he knew before he came. Now, the body of Christ was divinely prepared by God to be the instrument which was to bring God to mankind and which was to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. And so Jesus came with, with all the fanfare of heaven. As angels waited to sing and shout their praise when he was born. But there wasn't any fanfare on earth. Earth was oblivious to what was about to happen. You know what's so sad? So much of the earth is still oblivious. God was being manifested in flesh. Heaven knew about it. Earth didn't. The Holy Spirit had taken nine months to accomplish that work in that that specialized body. He had in those nine months fashioned in the womb of Mary a body, a body like no other body, a body that was to be inhabited by the second person of the Trinity, a body that had now become ready and the time was ready that Mary would deliver. The fullness of time had come as 
Scripture puts it, when Jesus would be made of a woman, when that body came, with it came the second person of the Trinity. We should take some time this season to stop and just ponder that point. And every year at Christmas time, we all stop, and so many, unfortunately, rather mindlessly acknowledge, yeah, it's the time that Jesus was born, and we're going to celebrate. And many acknowledge the fact that he was God to some degree or the other. Yeah, I kind of believe that. But the issue is not that he came. The issue is not when he came. The issue is why he came. So many people seem content to stop with just the fact that he came. And if there's some kind of re- as if there's some kind of redeeming factor in that alone, they never bother to find out why he came, because there's so many that just don't care. This morning we want to answer that question, why was Jesus born? Why did he come? Was it to present God? Yes. Was it to teach truth? Yes. To fulfill law, yes. To offer his kingdom, yes. To teach, to teach those who didn't understand about God, yes. To reveal love, yes. To bring peace, yes. To heal the sick, yes. But those are all secondary reasons for why he came. There's really one primary reason, one primary plan, one primary purpose. Jesus came to suffer and die. That's why he came. Bethlehem only happened so Calvary could happen. He was only a baby so he could be a man and die. He only lived in order to die. As one commentator put it, and I quote, Those soft hands fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb were made in order that nails might be driven through them. Those chubby feet, pink and unable to walk, were one day to walk a hill and be nailed to a cross. That sweet head with sparkling eyes and eager mouth was formed in order that someday men might crush into it a crown of thorns. That tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped open by a spear to reveal a broken heart. And folks, that's exactly why God made that body. Jesus was born to die. Mankind was meant to have domination over everything. But he fell in sin and he lost that domination. And when God created Adam, it it was great. Everything was perfect. And then man fell and he lost his kingship. He lost his dominion. And And to put it crudely but accurately, from that moment on, everything started going to hell. And into this situation came Jesus. He said goodbye to his father. The angels who waited in anticipation finally burst forth in praise and adoration. And even the shepherds in the fields heard them. Because he came to suffer and he came to die in order that mankind, um, would, or, or in order to make mankind what mankind could not be without him. This morning in our passage here in Hebrews 2, the writer gives us five reasons, five reasons that Jesus came, none of which could be accomplished if he didn't die, so he came to die. 
The first one, first reason is that he came to be our substitute. Now, some of these things aren't going to surprise you, but it's, it's a good reminder for us. In verse 9, it says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Now, I want to stop there just for a second, because there's been some theological debate on what that word little means. The Greek is brakus, brakus, which means short or little, which is used two different ways, actually, in, in, as in a short distance, which makes sense in this context. You've got, you've got God, you've got the angels, and you've got man. And now as man, Jesus was made lower, a little lower than the angels. However, that same word for little can also refer to time, as in for a short time for a little while, which also makes sense in this context. For a little while, he was made lower than the angels. It was a very little while in light of all eternity for only 33 years. I personally think there's a kind of a double entendre going on here because both of those make sense. But what's more important even than that is a reason that God did this. We find that in the second half of verse 9. It was for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now there is the first and greatest reason why Jesus came. He came to die. He came to die for every person, which means he came as a substitute. You remember in Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, it says the one who sins is the one who will die. That's the consequences. Paul in the New Testament said the wages of sin is death. No ifs, ends, or buts. Now God, being absolutely just, must punish sin by death. If I sin, I have to die. If I am punished for my sin, that punishment is death. I die physically, I die spiritually, I die eternally, and am sentenced to an eternal hell without God. But God looked into this world that He created and mankind that He created and He saw mankind whom, whom He created and, and, and whom He loved and He saw they were all going to die because of sin. I believe it broke His heart. And he says, because of His love, I will not, I cannot allow everyone to die in their sin. I will send someone else to bear their punishment to die in their place. And he sent Jesus. He sent his own son. He came to be my substitute. He came to be your substitute. And when he was nailed on the cross, he died for me and he died for you. He died my death. He died your death. He paid our penalty, providing for us an escape from certain eternal death in hell. The sinless one became sin. The living one died. The perfect one was punished. The punished one. You know, this particular verse, this one verse itself is fascinating because there are actually five clauses in this verse that detail his substitutionary death. First clause is, we see Jesus who was made a little while lower than the angel. This is an amazing truth. Here, here we have the humiliation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ for all of eternity past, all of eternity present, all of eternity future, was not and is not and never will again be lower than the angels. 
He is by his very essence as God higher than the angels. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, it says, So he became as much superior to the angels as the one he has inherited is superior to theirs. The name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Christ was by nature higher and better and more superior than the angels. And just so everyone knew it, he himself said in verse 5, For, for to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. That's a rhetorical question in Scripture. He never said that to any angel. In fact, in verse 6, he tells the angels what their attitude must be towards his son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. But for a little while, verse 9, chapter 2, he became lower than angels. The creator of angels, the head of the angels, the Lord of hosts, the creator of the universe, the one who before his incarnation has been worshipped by angels, for a little while became lower than the angels for our sake. For sinful, rebellious, vile, wicked people who did not want God, who did not know God, and for our sakes, Christ became lower than the angels. Second statement in this verse tells us the process or the how of his substitution. It says, Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Now, the word for in Greek is dia, and it's used in a lot of different ways. The primary meaning is through or for or by. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels through or by the suffering of death. In other words, the greatest proof that Christ was lower than the angels was that he died. Now, it's true that he was made lower than the angels in order to die, but it's also true that he was made lower than the angels because he died. Dia, the Greek word here, also has a connotation of because. You see, Jesus did did something no angel can ever or will ever be able to do. Angels don't die. Jesus came to die. That's reserved for mortals. And when Jesus died, he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that, in fact, for a little while, he was made lower than the angels. And you'll note that it says the suffering of death. When Jesus died, as we know, it wasn't just an easy, he fell asleep and died. It was suffering. It was excruciating agony and torture on the cross. He suffered in his death. No angelic uh, creature was capable of that. It had to be someone who is totally man to pay man's penalty and totally God to have victory over death. He had to be the perfect combination of total God and total man. Christ undertook a work that was far above the power of any angels, yet to do it, he became lower than the angels. Christ was all the same time higher than angels in power, lower than angels in his humiliation, a perfect combination that had to be accomplished. Then it tells us the purpose of his humiliation and his substitution at the end of verse 9 that he might taste death for pantos, everyone. Jesus came to die for you as he tasted death. He drank the bitter cup of Calvary. He, he drained it to the last drop. 
The death he tasted was a total death. Every possible aspect was covered. The death he tasted was a curse which sin brings because he bore our sin. The death he tasted was a penalty for broken law. The death he tasted was a full manifestation of the power of the devil thrown against him. The death he tasted was a full expression of the wrath of God coming down upon him because of our sin that he took upon himself. Jesus was without sin, but he tasted it for every person. He was our substitute. And by Christ tasting death and being our substitute, we are free from the fear of God's justice, which must bring death. And I am liberated, you are liberated, to experience God's grace and God's love. That's amazing. That's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, when he wrote, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the freedom that we receive. And all God asks of anyone is that they receive Jesus Christ, who humbled himself so drastically for them, and accept this amazing gift, this, this amazing free gift of grace and mercy, and instead of looking ahead to eternal damnation, receive eternal life. Then you see in this verse also the phrase that indicates the cause of his substitution. Near the end of verse 9 it says that he did all this by the grace of God. That he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone you know why Jesus came? Not because you or I asked for him, or deserved him for that matter, but because God graciously designed it. Salvation comes from God, an absolutely undeserved, unmerited grace of God. We don't earn it and we don't deserve it. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... That's what's so amazing about it. While we're still sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. Then we see one other phrase here that tells us the results of his coming and his substitution. He says he was crowned with glory and honor. You know, when Jesus Christ finished his work, God gave him glory. God exalted him. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, you remember the verse, he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And because of that, therefore, Paul says, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Jesus humiliated himself and God exalted him crowned him with glory and honor. God thought so much of what Jesus did that he highly exalted him and gave him a name above every other name in the universe. You know, I cringe every time someone uses the name of Jesus in vain. Every time they use Jesus' name as a curse. If God holds Christ in such esteem, What must be the consequences of someone who does not? Reminds me of the title of that great message that Jonathan Edwards once preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The second thing we see that Christ became, according to this passage here in Hebrews, is that he is a pioneer 
a pioneer of our salvation. What does that mean? Verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. He is a pioneer of our salvation. The word pioneer is interesting. It's a Greek word, archegos. Archegos, it means leader, it means author, it means trailblazer, as you would think of a pioneer. And archegos is used again in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, a great faith chapter we looked at a while back. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the author, the archegos, the perfecter of our faith. It means someone, anyone, who begins something that others will follow. It could be someone that founds a city where others are going to come and live. It could be someone that's blazing a trail that others will follow behind them. Anyone who starts something and leads us in that or leads others in that is an archegos. And here the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus Christ is our perfect trailblazer. And he leads us on the path to glory so that God, by making a perfect trailblazer, can gather up his sons or, or draw his sons and daughters with him and they can, all, uh, they can all follow their pioneer into glory. And it was fitting for God to do this. Isn't that interesting? It was fitting for God. It pleased God who does, does all things for his glory, who made all things for his glory to the end that they might give him glory. That's what the first part of that verse means. It pleased him to make this pioneer perfect so that he could blaze that trail into the Father's presence and bring along with him all those who would believe in him. Over in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, it says, Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Once made perfect, he became the source. Same word, archegos. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him. Jesus Christ is a perfect leader. Through death, He not only was a substitute, but a perfect leader, a perfect trailblazer. Practically speaking, what does that mean? It means that there is no other way to get to God apart from Jesus Christ. You see, all paths don't lead to heaven. There is only one way because the way to God is blocked by sin. A person and their sin cannot just walk into God's presence. It's an impossibility. Someone had to blaze that trail. Someone had to make the way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. God made him the pioneer of their salvation, perfect through what he suffered. There's no way you and I can get into the presence of God when there's unpunished sin. That's why he had to suffer to be that perfect leader. He couldn't lead us to God unless he paid the price for sin. The cross was a masterpiece, absolute masterpiece of God's genius. This was God's perfect solution. He brought mercy and justice together at the cross. And Christ paid the penalty, bore an eternity of judgment, an eternity of judgment in three hours, and claimed victory. He became our perfect archegos. He opened up the trail by his death. 
And as we celebrate Christmas this season, let's, let's remember that he was born for no other reason. Thirdly, he became our sanctifier. We find that in verses 11 to 13. Verse 11, both the one who makes people holy, talking about Jesus Christ, and those who are made holy are of the same family. Isn't that cool? To be sanctified means to be made holy, to be separated from the world, separated unto God. And because he alone does that, he, says, is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. That's how he brings us into the same family. This is an amazing truth. Do you, do, do you know what this tells us? Jesus Christ is holy and he is capable of making you holy and making me holy. We are the holy ones referred to in verse 11 that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. You see, through his death and our faith in Jesus, believing and receiving him as a Savior, we are declared holy. That's what they refer to as positional truth. Before God, by your faith in Jesus Christ, you are holy if you know Christ. How does that work? When Christ died on the cross, how much of my sin did he pay for? He paid for all of it. That means God cannot hold me responsible in terms of judgment for any of it. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now what? No condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's encouraging to me. I don't know about you. That's amazing. It all was on Christ at the cross. So God says, uh, positionally, because of your faith in Christ, you are holy. He's paid for every sin you'll ever commit. Now we know that doesn't give us license to sin. That's not true love in, in our Father. It's interesting to note that the Greek word hagiadzo means to make holy. And the noun form of that verb is hagios, which means holy ones or saints. Paul often referred to the various believers in the churches that he was writing his letters to as saints. And folks, we too are saints. We are made holy. We are sanctified. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, to the church of God in Corinth. Now, if you remember, if you remember any studies on Corinth, the people, the, the, the town of Corinth was a horrible, sinful area, a, a, a city. And the people were getting involved in all the kinds of stuff that was going on in that city. But so, Paul says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified, hagiadzo, made holy in Christ Jesus and called to be His holy people. Those are the ones He was writing to. In 2 Corinthians, as He starts, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all His holy people, Hagios. Ephesians chapter 1, to, to God's holy people in Ephesus, Hagios. If Paul was writing to the church in Sio, he would write to God's Hagios. To God's holy people in Sio. Folks, if we are holy, we should regularly be asking that question that the psalmist asked in Psalm 19.14. Are the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart pleasing in your sight? O God, my rock and my redeemer. So in Christ, we be, 
Christ came, he humbled himself, he took on the body of a man, he died a sacrificial death to be our substitute and became the groundbreaking trailblazer. And it's the will of God that designed this. Look at verse 10 of chapter 10 there of Hebrews. And by that will, the will of God, by that will we, all believers, have been made holy, we have been sanctified through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We don't make ourselves holy. We cannot do that. Christ did that at the cross. We do, however, strive to become more like Christ. Forty-five years ago, I was pronounced husband to my wife. Positionally, I was her husband. Practically, for the next 45 years, I've strived to become the husband that God wants me to be for her. In Christ, we strive in practice to be what we are in position when we received Him as, as, as Savior. And that position of holiness cannot be taken away from us. That's an amazing truth. The writer of Hebrews explains why a few verses down in chapter 10, verse 14. For by one sacrifice, which sacrifice? The sacrifice of Jesus. He has made perfect for a little while or until you blow it. No, that's not what it says. He has made perfect, how long? Forever. These are expansive words that God is using in His, in His Word. He has made perfect forever those who are made holy. Who are the ones that have made holy? Those who have accepted Jesus Christ. Once we have received that holiness of Christ by God's will and by His hand, there is nothing in this universe that could ever take it away. We have been perfected forever through the offering of His body. And folks, if you could lose it, Jesus didn't do it well enough. Or He didn't do it right. That's why Paul says so confidently in Galatians chapter 3, 28, that you are all one in Christ. Same holiness. His righteousness is ours. His holiness is yours and it's mine. God, help me to act like what I am. Listen to verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy. Who is that? That's Jesus. And those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. There's that great New Testament concept of the family of God. I'm so glad we have the New Testament. By His grace, God has adopted us as His children, which means that we have become brothers and sisters in Christ. Part of the same family with the same fathers. Scripture tells us that we are joint heirs with Christ. We are His brothers. We are His sisters. And verse 12 uh, goes on to tell us there in Hebrews uh, 2, he says, I will declare your name to whom? To my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here, I am, here am I and the children of God and the children God has given me. Referring to us, to all those who follow him. You know, I'm so glad to have that New Testament uh, concept, right? And that we can now be a part of God's family. But wait, do, do you know where those words that the Hebrew writer wrote came from? Psalm 
chapter 22, Isaiah chapter 8, talking about his descendants, talking about his children. Folks, this was God's plan all along. This is not a brand new New Testament concept. This was God's plan from the very beginning. This was actually an Old Testament concept and developed in the New Testament. In God's sovereign will, Jesus was born to be our substitute. He was born to be our salvation pioneer. He was born to be our sanctifier. He made us holy. That's why in verse 11 he tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. How can we resist that kind of love? And then in verse 14 we are told that he is our Satan conqueror. Since the children have flesh and blood... The children, referring back to verse 13, we believers, human beings, we have flesh and blood. He too shared in their humanity. He humbled himself to become a man as we are. Why? So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Now the one thing that Satan has over mankind is death. It's going to happen. Satan knows that the wages of sin is death. He's very aware of that. And if he can keep a person living in sin until they die, he'll have them forever. Satan's greatest power is death, and so somebody had to destroy that power. Satan knows that if he could hold on to a person until they die, that God can't get them anymore. Satan knows that Jesus said, I have come that they may have life. Satan knows Scripture. Why do you think he is becoming more and more blatant in his attempts to get people to hate Jesus? There is an unreasonable hatred in our country and around the world towards Jesus and his church. And it's a hatred with the power of Satan behind it. And even the vast majority of Christians today, I believe, don't understand where the battle really is. It's not against flesh and blood, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, but it's against the spiritual realm of Satan. God designed salvation to be in a person's lifetime, not afterwards. Hebrews 9.27 says people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. No second chances. And folks, Satan knows that truth as well and tries to trap people through ignorance, through hatred, to keep them until they die, then God won't be able to touch them. Ah, but God knew that too. God knows Satan really well. He knows all of his tricks. He knows all of his his plans and his scheming. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 tells us, Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Somebody had to break this power, and it had to be a man. Some man had to conquer death, destroy Satan's weapon, and that's exactly what Jesus did. Verse 14 there in Hebrews 2 says that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. One of the reasons why Jesus came. Jesus died and rose again, and that way he destroyed Satan's power of death. He became a man to die as a man and have a man's victory over the grave. It's only he that could do it. But he had to be God at the same time to have that victory. 
as verse and as verse 15 says free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death that's why we read again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 54, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God, He gave us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus conquered Satan, the fourth reason He was born. And the final reason we celebrate Christmas, the final reason that the author of Hebrews points out, that Jesus was born, was to become our merciful and faithful high priest. He says in verse 16, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, you and I. Jesus didn't come become an angel to die for angels. There's salvation for angels. He became a Jew, an Abraham's seed, a human being, in order that he might identify with mankind to die for people. He didn't come to redeem angels, he came to redeem people. For this reason, verse 17, he had to be made like them, like people, fully human in every way, in order that he might become merciful, because he understands us now, and faithful and a faithful high priest in service of God. What did the high priests do in the Old Testament? They represented people to God. They offered a lamb to God as a sin sacrifice. And Jesus came and he offered himself as that final lamb. Why? That he might make atonement for, that he might pay the price for the sins of the people. Then listen to verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's so cool, isn't it? Because when you go to Jesus to share your heart, he can say, I know. I know. I understand. I felt it too. He is our sympathetic high priest. Listen, in all things, Jesus was like we are. He was hungry, he was thirsty, he was overcome with fatigue, he slept, he taught. He grew, he loved, he was astonished, he marveled, he was glad, he was sad, he was angry, he was grieved, he was troubled, he was overcome by the anticipation of future events, he exercised faith, he read scripture, he prayed all night, he sighed when he saw a man who couldn't speak, tears fell from his eyes when his heart inside was broken and ached, he was like his brothers and sisters in all things except for sin and sickness. And so he was a perfect high priest. Completely by experience, he understood God. And completely by experience, he understood man. He was a perfect one to bring the two together. Perfect sympathizer. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence 
with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There's the meaning of Christmas. There's the meaning of Christmas. Why do we celebrate Christmas? For the lights and the decorations and the gifts? No. We celebrate because Jesus was born to be our substitute. We celebrate because He was born to be the pioneer of our salvation. We we celebrate because He was born to be our sanctifier. We celebrate because He came to be our conqueror and He was born to be our sympathizing high priest. This Christmas, as we take another look at the manger, let's ask this question posed by this poem that I came across. Who art thou, precious little babe, nestled in the hay? God I am, come to earth this day. Why didst thou come, sweet little babe, nestled in the hay? To die I came, the price of sin to pay. Whose sin... Tender little babe, nestled in the hay. Yours it was that brought me down this day. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your gift. Without it, we would be destroyed. We would be going to hell for all of eternity. But because of your great love for us, because of your amazing mercy and your, your grace, While we didn't deserve it, while we were sinners, you looked at us and said, I can't allow this to happen. I need to supply a solution. I'm going to come down myself in the form of Jesus. Die on the cross. I'm going to take that price. I'm going to pay that price. And and I'm going to give freedom and new life. Father, this morning, as, as we are going through the Christmas season, I pray that as we look at that manger, We will sing the King of glory who came down to give us that new life and promise that eternity with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray.